This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. It's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Now back to the show. Coming up. A gruesome discovery at the Penn Museum in West Philadelphia. I was in shock when I was told this. Faculty held onto the bones of children killed in the 1985 move bombing, even using one of them in classes. They've done like the worst things that they could have done to us. This doesn't surprise me. Whose remains were they? How did Penn get them? Why did they keep them? And what the family is demanding? Plus, the director of the Penn Museum apologizes on behalf of the institution. There's no justification for Dr. Mann or the museum having this material for so long. What they're doing to resolve the problem and ensure that it never, ever, ever happens again. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the recent discovery that the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology had in its collection the remains of children killed during the move bombing in West Philadelphia. The story broke in recent days that Penn faculty hired in 1985 to identify the bodies kept the bones for decades without permission and even used the bones in classes. Of course, the bombshell comes days before May 13th, the 36th anniversary of the move tragedy. To discuss how this all happened is Abdul Ali Muhammad, the journalist and activist who broke the story, and Mike Africa Jr., a member of the Move family. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you, Thank for-, you for having us. So, Abdul Ali, I would like to start with you. How did you get involved to where you discover that remains from Tree Africa and possibly Delisha Africa were in the hands of Penn professors? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been working over the past two and a, two and a half years, I would say, around uh, repatriation of Black people's crania that is in the possession of Penn Museum. And someone reached out to me after the the last piece I wrote about the Morton cranial collection. And Samuel Morton was a white supremacist doctor who amassed uh, a collection of crania of Black folks who were enslaved. Someone read that piece about repatriation, Amy Sedeo, who was the director of the ICA um, for years. So I think about seven years. And that's a museum on Penn's campus as a part of Penn. And Amy told me that she had some disturbing information that she learned in 2016, that the Penn Museum and that Janet Monge, associate curator at the museum, had uh, the remains of a move bombing victim. At that point, I was just, I was in shock when I was told this weeks ago. They got this material, these remains from the city of Philadelphia. The days after the May 13th uh, bombing and killing of 11 people, including Trine Delisha, Africa. Medical, the city's medical examiner brought on Alan Mann, who is a bioanthropologist 
and he was a professor at Penn. And Mann was working closely with a PhD student at the time, Janet Monge, who is the associate curator of the Penn Museum. They worked for about a day and some change to help the medical examiner identify the remains after that. They should have um, officially have ended their view of these remains, but clearly they kept some of the remains from the family. Yeah. And they just kept them. And yeah. Yeah. So what happened was, you know, they they helped the medical examiner identify remains. They say that the remains are, are of seven adults and four children. Then the move commission um, started by the mayor, Mayor Good, comes in and they want a new uh, examination of the remains. And they hire a doctor from Delaware, Dr. Ali Hameli, a forensic specialist to come and work for the MOVE Commission. So Hameli looks at the remains, has other people work with him, and he determines that man was actually wrong in, in uh, how he described the remains and that uh, the remains are of five children and six adults. And when that report comes out in November of 1985, Alan Mann challenges that report in the press, further delaying the release of the remains to family. So then the commission has to now re-examine the remains for a third time. Hameli does this with two additional people who hadn't been involved before, um, and then reaffirms his, his, his earlier report. His earlier report basically says that man was wrong. There's uh, five children, six adults, and the remains that were questioned or the remains yeah. that were, were stated to be unidentifiable. Hameli says these are the remains of Tree Africa. And then there were some other remains for Delisha um, that there was questions about. And Hameli says these are Delisha's remains. That's the <laughs> end of the report. The commission then tells the medical examiner to release the remains per your normal procedures. And the medical examiner should have released all the remains to the next of kin. The family, uh, and Mike can come in here, the family believed all this time that Tree Africa, that Delisha Africa had been put to rest. Is that true, Mike? I definitely did. Um, I, I remember my grandmother and my great aunt participating in identifying people. And I remember funerals back then. I had no idea that some people were not turned over or parts of some people were not turned over. And I'm sure that none of the people in my family gave no consent to do this to Tree and Alicia or anyone else. How did you learn of this? A friend of the family called me and told me that there was some really disturbing news. And I spoke to a couple of other people in my family about it. And then I got a call from another friend and I was put in contact with Abdul Ali. For you to have to tell this to this family, what was that like for you? It was hard. It was heavy. Um, I was still trying to process, you know, how I felt about it. And I was angry, enraged, um, hurt. I felt hurt. I felt I, I felt so many things, but I knew that the first order of business was to to have this information given. Uh, given to the family. I knew that that was the first thing I wanted to do, which is what I did ultimately, 
is reach out to people close to move uh, family. And I got in touch with Mike and we talked. Mike, you know, Tree's mother, their mother, Tree and Delicious mother, still alive and here. And can you try to describe their reaction to learning this hard to even fathom information? One of the things that I was really adamant about making sure of was uh, making sure that they found out the information before they read it in the paper or before they saw it on the television watching the news. So I reached immediately reached out to Pam and other people who I know had direct contact with them because I hadn't seen them. I, you know, a lot of people just assume that we see each other all the time. We're around each other all the time, but we, we have our own families and, you know, life happens, right? You take time, you know, you, sometimes you don't see people for, for periods of time. So I hadn't seen them in a while, but I wanted to make sure that they heard. And the first time that I actually talked to them, either of them, I actually talked to Janine on the phone. She sounded exasperated. One of the things she actually said was they've done like the worst things that they could have done to us. This doesn't surprise me. And she said it in a way that sounded like just so like hurt. I don't want to speak for her or say what she was feeling at the time, but that was my interpretation of her, of her reaction. There was a press conference after the story broke. There was a march uh, and rally outside of Penn Museum after the story broke. And now there's advocacy efforts to try to reach, you know, um, some solution. And I will say Penn has apologized. I understand they've reached out to the family. Your reaction to their apology. I've been reciting this quote that my dad gave me when Wilson Good apologized for dropping the bomb 35 years earlier. And when Edmund Dell apologized for keeping moved people in prison for 40 years, saying that they, that he, you know, he wished he, he regret that he pushed for so much time for people that he knew were not the leaders of the organization. My dad said something that really stuck with me. He said, apology without action is meaningless. And you see the signs. Give us, give us Mumia. Uh, apology without action is meaningless. You, you see these around because my dad said something that is really, really, really tr- true and powerful. Like to make an apology for uh, something so egregious, but not actually live up to the demands that we have put forth is telling. And I wonder about that because so far our demands some of them are, we have our lawyers and I, I've been working with a lawyer to talk to, to figure out the best way to approach the, this whole thing. And I'm sure my lawyer is working on it diligently. Um, but I can say that at least one of the demands that um, I feel is very important and would show a sign of like, I guess, good faith to me is that Janet Mines, we don't know if she's been fired or not. I haven't seen or heard anything about her being fired. And I think that Given the situation, I think that um, she should be. I can say that as a Black man born and raised in West Philadelphia, if I took some, some remains of some people, especially some, say I took some remains from some, some children, some Black children, and I drove them around in my car and I passed them around from person to person and I put them on, on the internet and, made, and taught 5,000 people about what I've done, I would be in jail. It wouldn't be an investigation to find out whether or not I should be fired. 
from my job. And I think that it shouldn't matter the status of a person or the title of a person should not dictate whether or not what they're doing is wrong or right if what they're doing is actually wrong. And Janemons has not been fired. And I think that's atrocious. I just wonder about the seriousness of the apology that was made, knowing that these demands have not been met, some of the ones that are easily doable. And, and just to be clear, there have been demands, number one, the remains to be returned. Has that happened? I've heard that they were going to do that. I've yet to, to have any proof of that so far. I understand they were given to some a funeral facility, but as far as the family having access to that or control of that, that's not been confirmed by you, Mike. Not yet, no. What I would say is I am in full solidarity with what Mike is saying around the demands of move to free Mumia Abu-Jamal, to um, have Janet Monge fired, to give move the family, the mom, some kind of restitution, that there needs to be a deep investigation by outside parties, not connected to the city, not connected to Penn, to really understand. Because what, what Mike's father said when we were on Mike has a podcast. And when we were on the podcast, Mike Africa Sr. said, we really don't know what they have. And that's true. We don't know what they have, right? Uh, folks uh, thought that they buried a tree in December of 85. And folks thought that they had buried Delisha in September of 86. So we actually don't know. We don't have a clear picture about what is in possession at Penn. We need a clear inventory of what's in their possession. And in terms of the apology from Penn, it's, an, it's inadequate. This is such an unbounded tragedy. To, to take you back to that day, and I, I know this is upsetting for Mike, but I have to like paint the picture of what happened, right? Not only did they shoot water cannons, not only did they sh shoot over 100 rounds of ammunition, not only did they tear gas the home, they dropped a satchel bomb on top of the house. They murdered 11 people. They destroyed two city blocks. After that, there was no care for the bodies, right? When, you, when there's some kind of tragedy like this, right, where there's a devastating event, people are very careful, right? People come in trying to be careful with retrieving the remains of people. What happened in this case is the city brought in bulldozers to demolish the house. So they were basically demolishing moving, separating bodies with, with equipment. And then the medical examiner got the remains all in a bundle. Can you imagine how disrespectful that is to then bundle people's remains so that now they have to decide and decipher who these remains belong to? I've never heard of a crime scene handled that way. So they, they were disrespected when they were alive. They were disrespected as they were murdered. They were disrespected in the care for their remains afterwards. And then you have two anthropologists shuffling body parts between Princeton and the University of Pennsylvania. And like Mike said, on an, on an online course, making money, talking about trees remains as juicy. This is an egregious act. There's no kind of repair here. But what they can do is listen to what the family wants. And I would say the last piece is it's not an apology if it's not directly given. You need to see the people, see their faces and apologize that way, not doing some kind of PR campaign. And this kind of 
devastating act requires a daily apology, a daily consistent apology. Christopher Woods, who's the new director of that museum should be calling uh, the parents every day. I'm so sorry, what can we do? I'm so sorry, what can we do, right? This whole, I'm gonna just extend this apology. Oh, well, it's done. And now our lawyers are doing an investigation. Isn't enough. I, I even asked Mr. Woods this question. I said, black man put in position weeks before this broke. It seemed fishy to me. I agree. I mean, if you read the piece that I wrote right, uh, be, right when he was coming in about the 14 crania of black Philadelphians that were grave robbed at uh, Franklin Field, I, I questioned why they hired him because, you know, again, here's a white institution trying to position a black person to basically deal with the fallout of, of, of some messed up racist stuff that is going on there. And, you know, that's what it was looking like. That's what it feels like to me is, you know, they put him in this position to, to be the black face to answer to community. And honestly, this kind of act needs to be responded to by um, Amy Gutman. Amy Gutman needs to, to make this kind of apology. All of the, the leadership of that organization or that university, they have to make direct apology to the family. And Mike, is there any way to make this this severely egregious error in judgment, atrocity, crime? Can you resolve it? You know, this is this is like a burn. Ramona has burns on her. She has a gigantic burn on her shoulder, all the way down her, all the way down her arm to her elbow. And it's third degree. It's gruesome. Um, that burn, it healed to the point where she functioned normally. But the scar from that wound is still very, very visible. I think there's a way to move on, to, to, to move on. But I, I don't think that that scar will ever go away. And the body is a naturally healing mechanism, right? Our minds naturally work to heal from, from trauma, from whatever. There's ways that our minds naturally try to adapt to that, right? Um, but I don't think that there's ever a way to just like really get over it. But I think that um, that shouldn't stop Penn from trying because I think what Abdul Ali said is true. However they acquired, if that's the word, somebody's remains and then took them around for 36 years and then actually put them in their private collection. How do you even apologize for that? How do you even try to pretend that that was a mistake or an oversight or if the family had requested them, I'd have given them back. Like, how do you even say that? Janet Mines needs to be fired, probably arrested. I just can't get over it. I can't get over it. I can't get over it knowing that Tree was just such a good person and for this to be done to her. Tell us who was Tree. Tree was the oldest of the move kids. She was the responsible one. She was a tree climber who you couldn't beat in any competition. I don't care who you are. And in our family, she was she was the queen of it. Very, very good attitude. She was fair for the kids, you know, within our within our groups, we had people that were more aggressive 
some of the kids were more aggressive and, and, and like might try to like, you know, bully their way through because they're older. And Tree would never accept that from anybody. Like she would get in a fight with somebody that was trying to bully one of the other kids. She was just um, a very special person. Thank you for that, Mike. And I know this has been a tough, you know, to have to relive and tell this story and tough for you as well, Abdul Ali, to have, you know, seeing this tragedy unfold. Um, so both of you, um, thank you for talking about this. And it's not lost that this is leading up to the 36th anniversary of the day that Abdul Ali described as the you know, wrong after wrong after wrong, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy on top of it. Uh, Mike, I know uh, your family marks this day so that folks will never forget what happened. And you will be marking this day now with this knowledge. And how will you do that? So on May 13th, 2021, we're having a rally and a march. Uh, the rally is going to start at Osage and Cobbs Creek Parkway, where the historical move marker is about a half a block down the street from where the bomb was dropped. We're going to start there at 5 p.m. and we're going to march. After we hear some speakers and people commemorate, we're going to march to Malcolm X Park, which is on 52nd and between Larchwood and Pine, I think. We're going to march there where we're going to have some more move. We're going to have move speakers. We're actually also going to have our book. We just did a, a 50 years on the move is the name of the new book that um, myself and other members of the organization just put out to show the history of the organization. People are gonna talk more and speak and, and, and um, remember the lost souls. Well, with that, I wanna say, there's so much coming out right now. And I commend you, Abdullah Lee, on your journalism, on your activism, and on exposing this to the world. And my deepest condolences to you, Mike, and to the entire Africa family on this discovery. With that, Abdul Ali Muhammad, Mike Africa Jr., thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thank you, Jerry. Next up, we'll continue this discussion with the head of Penn's museum. He'll give us their side of the story. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, Flashpoint family. If you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. 
Splash Point, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We are continuing our discussion about the discovery that the Penn Museum had for 35-plus years kept the bones of children killed in the 1985 move bombing and had even used the bones in classes without the knowledge or permission of the move family. The university has apologized multiple times. Dr. Christopher Woods, director of the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, is here to explain this. Welcome to Flashpoint. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Now, I understand from Penn's statement that you learned of the issue with the Move family days before the story broke. Please tell me exactly what happened. Sure. So um, I should give you the broader context. You know, I started my position at Penn on April 1st. So I was new to the university. Um, The very first topic that I dealt with as director in the beginning of April was the Morton collection. And this was the repatriation and reburial of individuals that were in the Morton collection. So the staff had um, issues of repatriation very much on their minds. And I had a meeting on April 16th where it was brought to my attention that we had material, human remains, from uh, the horrific 1985 move bombing. This was was news to me. And obviously the first question was, why do we have this material And how can we get this material back to the families where they belong as soon as possible? Why did Penn have this material 35 plus years after the bombing? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, So in 1985, the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office asked Dr. Alan Mann, who at that time was a Penn professor and the museum's curator in chief in charge of the physical anthropology section, uh, to help establish the identity of remains uh, recovered from the move house. There was some debate over the age of the individuals represented by the remains. The medical examiners, forensic anthropologists had one view. Dr. Mann had another view. And this material, these remains were given over to Dr. Mann to help resolve this question. This was a debate that went on for a very long time. And over the years, our physical anthropologists revisited this question. You know, it was driven by new science and technology. But despite these efforts, they were you know, unfortunately unable to confirm the identity of uh, of the victims. Even though this work was done as a public service, they wanted to help solve this case and bring closure. The amount of time is, is just far, far too long. There's no justification for um, Dr. Mann or the museum having this material for so long. It should have been turned back over to the family many, many years ago. One of the more shocking facts that came out of this was the fact that some of the bones of young tree Africa were used in a class and it was on video. How was that possible? This was just a terrible lapse of judgment. This should never have happened. So I would say that Forensic anthropology classes need to use human bones to do, to teach the next generation of a forensic anthropologist. That's the material they work with. But the way that this should be done, the ethical way that this should be done is with consent, with individuals prior to the time that they die, they donate their bodies to science, or with consent of family members, immediate family members afterwards. And clearly that didn't happen in this case. 
And that should never have happened. That was a, a terrible lapse in judgment. And I apologize to the, the Africa family and to the community for that error in judgment. Now, the, the professor who was seen in the video, what is the status of her employment there? I personally can't comment right now on HR issues. I would point out that we have, we're in the middle of an investigation. The university has asked Tucker Law Group. The investigation is being led by Joe Tucker and Carl Singley, who was actually involved in the original MOVE Commission, to investigate how these remains came into the possession of Alan Mann and came to um, be housed in the museum. What transpired over these nearly four decades you know, one of the problems that we're faced with when we look into this is that the record keeping is, is is really terrible. We don't have a good understanding right now of how this material was transferred to man by the medical examiner, why, under what authority, why it wasn't recalled back. I don't have access to those records. I haven't seen those records. So I want to learn the circumstances by which these remains came to Alaman, how they came into the museum, why they were used so long, uh, why, why they were here the subject of research for so long. And on the question of the class, this should not have happened. And this has to be a a wider discussion we have to have, and we're now having in the museum, about the stewardship of human remains and how they're used in research and teaching. Yeah, and it's like, also, how did it go from you know, Dr. Mann to, to Janet Monge, who was seen on, you know, how did that, because it just passed on from one professor to another, to, to where it was used. Cause I understand, uh, you know, man uh, is, is quite, he's in his, he's in his eighties at this point and was working at different universities. Cause it, it just seems like it's, you know, these are, these are kids, the bones of kids, the parents were alive and, and no one needs seems to know the answer. Yeah, it, it shouldn't happen. So Janet Monge was Elliman's graduate student. So she had worked with him on this material. So they were close colleagues. Um, so she was involved in that. Um, the material, they simply had it for, for far too long. It should not have happened. And I, I'm really grateful that we're going to have this independent investigation because this sort of thing should never happen, right? It can never happen again. So let's have this investigation. We'll have it's, a, it's an independent investigation. It will be published online. It will be freely available. And let's get to the bottom of, of why this happened so that we can be sure that this this never happens before. I mean, clearly, um, in terms of, of, of protocols and the way that materials, especially human remains, enter the museum, even though these weren't formally part of the collection, they were in this museum. Um, and when material comes into the museum, when it leaves the museum, you know, we need obviously much, much tighter protocols, or we have to make sure that the protocols we do have are being adhered to so that there's there's a record of how this material is, how it's moved and, and that we can track it in a more efficient scientific way. Now the bones are no longer in Penn's possession. Is that correct? That's correct. The bones that were in Alaman's possession are no longer with Alaman. They've they've been they've been moved, and it's that's been widely reported in the press. One of the things that we're doing now is trying to learn the full extent of everything that we have in connection with the move bombing. So this is probably the most important question we're faced with now in this investigation. Making sure we have everything is. A, accounted for and that that everything we possibly have is returned to the family. And once again, this comes down to an issue 
of the record keeping and the records that are there and the records that were issued by the medical examiner's office. We need to have a full understanding of what's there. Right now, we're talking about the remains of Tree and Alicia Africa, but you're saying that you're, the pen is looking to make sure that there are no other remains besides those two people. No, that, that would be the extent of it. The, the remains of Tree, who the medical examiner identified as Tree, those are accounted for. What is uncertain is Delisha and if those remains were in our collection, and that's what we're currently investigating. There's an ambiguity to the record going back to 1985 through very recently, and this is what we need to get to the bottom of. Could there be more than just... No, there wouldn't be more. That would be the extent. The question has always been if it's tree or if it's tree and Delisha, there's there's never been a question of, of more beyond that. You identify as African-American, Mr. Yes. You're new to this and you're a black man appointed to this position at a moment when this is a, a bombshell dropping on the city of a, one of the sorest points, one of the most tragic events in the city's history. Do you feel some kind of way about this? Because the community that I represent and I talk speak for feels like you were thrown under the bus to deal with this very racially charged issue. Yeah, you know, I can see how people would think that. Honestly, this came as a surprise to a lot of people here. You know, I think um, what I did know about was the Morton Collection and the Morton collection brought this other issue up. I really don't think there was a, you know, a conspiracy in that regard. It's there's a logic to the timing here. And, you know, for my part, you know, I'm happy to be part of the solution. You know, I'm in a position to try to make this right. I want to learn what the family, family's wishes are. It wasn't my doing, you know, but I can be a big part of the solution here. But, you know, I, I don't think that like, they were waiting for, for me to arrive for this to happen. I, I saw the way this unfolded at the museum. I saw the shock. There are a lot of people at the museum who are very upset. You know, this is, this is highly upsetting for lots and lots of people. This isn't a good situation for anybody. If there was the opportunity to have fixed it earlier, people would have done so. It was this, there's so much uncertainty around this material. Not many people even in the museum knew. So, um, you know, I take the attitude now of let's move forward. Let's let's fix this and um, let's get to a point where not only does something like this never happen again, but let's use this in a way to strengthen our relationship. I know there's a lot of work to do, a lot of repair, but let's try to bring this to a position where what, you know, the museum and the university is in a, in a better position with, uh, with the local community. How do you fix something like this, Dr. Woods? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there are a few elements of it. I mean, one is um, we need to apply resources to understanding what's in our physical anthropology section and inventorying it and making that inventory public. This is a very practical end to the problem. And the other is working with the community and regaining trust. And the museum offers a lot of programming courses, K through 12 education, but we need to now really partner with the city and understand what our local communities want. And we need to be in dialogue with them and ask them, what can we do? What should we be doing? And not, not coming, not coming up with programming of our own devices and saying, Hey, we think this is good for you, but understanding what people want, what they want to see and opening up a very long dialogue towards repair and reconciliation and um, and having 
our community outreach be at the core of everything that we do going forward. And got to ask for the Africa family, how do you even try to reach resolution with them? I've been in, um, I've been in contact with them. These are ongoing conversations. Of course, I've apologized to them over the phone. I would like, want to do that in person as well. And then I want to see what they want. You know, I'm here to listen and then conversation will continue on from there. But I'm, I'm here to, to listen, to explain, to apologize. And, I, you know, I want to take these next steps with them. And I'll just tell you that they've asked for uh, Dr. Janet Monch to be fired, some mm-hmm. type of restitution and, um, you know, and a change in policy so that this types of thing never happen again. And I will say I've met the mothers involved here. They thought their kids were buried. I don't even know how you how you fix that. It's it's a terrible situation, but I'm here to to work with them and, and go move on to the next step here. I have seen their demands. Certain elements of those have already been met. You know, we have the investigation. And return the remains. Returning the remains. There's an investigation. We're certainly revisiting our policies. You know, obviously, you know, HR decisions, you know, that's something I can comment. For us, at least on the, the museum side of things, let's see what the muse- what, what comes of the investigation. It's independent of me. I'm a, I'm a subject of the investigation. You know, that will be in, in terms of our internal response. The results of that investigation are very important. Will there be restitution? I want to speak to them and see exactly what they would like. Is there any timing on this as far as when you expect the investigation to be complete? I don't know because it's you know um, it's it's independent of me. I will tell you that the investigators uh, certainly are working quickly and deliberately and with speed. I wouldn't presume what their timeline is, but they've certainly been hard at work. I've been in contact with them on a daily basis. Is there anything else you'd like to add just about this process? Because some of the Students are outraged as well, you know, alumni outraged as well that their university would be part of something like this. You know, it's going to take a lot of introspection. I think there definitely are things we can do better. You know, it is a matter of resources. It's It's a matter of adhering to existing policies, tightening up existing policies. There's a lot of work to be done, but, you know, optimistic that it can be done. You know, I think it's hard work, but I think with good intentions, hard work and wise decisions and a lot of input from the community, we will make progress and that we will be in a better place when everything is said and done here. And I think we'll be judged by what we do moving forward. There's very little I can do about the past, especially before my term here. I feel terrible and I apologize for the role that the museum and the university uh, has had in, in reopening these these very raw wounds that have been you know, there for decades. But now I'm in the position where just by, by force and by the nature of when I began, that I need to look forward and to um, and, and to act deliberately, act with compassion, act with speed, and act with a lot of consultation to move to move forward. Has there been any apology from Dr. Mann or, or Janet Mann? The museum has as as well. I can't speak for for Ella Mann because he's not at the at the university. But both Princeton and Penn and the museum have have apologized on their on their behalfs. And and the apology from uh, the university was uh, in, in the names of uh, Provost Pritchett and, and myself. And, and my last question to you, race is a factor here. 
you know, at a very tumultuous time, you know, how are you all going to deal with the race factor as far as like, you know, in, in dealing with the change within the university? Yeah, well, this is something that's been very much on my mind. It's something I'm thinking very much about. We have a committee at the museum, a diversity committee that I'm looking forward to to working very closely with. I have a plan that I'm I'm working on that will speak directly to diversity at the museum um, and and engagement with the community. I just need to flesh out the details, but this is is a major part of what we need to do moving forward is um, have better representation at the museum and be able to engage with our community in a much more consultative way. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, Dr. Woods, I do not envy your position. So I do wish you luck in in trying to resolve this in a sensitive and hopefully a, a transformative way. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Next up, it's Mother's Day weekend, and a local nonprofit is focusing on a group of often forgotten mamas. We allow our moms to kind of enter a space where it's just no judgment. More on young lives and their efforts to support teen moms when we come back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work in caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org, that's PatriotHomeCare.org, or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Odyssey app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and it's Mother's Day weekend. And while teenage motherhood is rarely talked about these days, a Philadelphia group's sole mission is to support the youngest of moms and their children. Our Patriot Home Care Changemaker this week is Young Lives West Oak Lane. And here to talk about their effort is club coordinator Pam Canty. Pam, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. So for folks who've never heard of Young Lives, please explain what it is you all do. So Young Lives is a mentoring program for teen moms, and it is actually a global organization. It's Young Lives everywhere. They're all over the United States. And right here in Philly, we have three other ones. There's one in Kensington. There's one in North Broad. And we provide a mentoring program for moms that are under 20. We have a monthly club that we offer where our moms come to just hang out. We just spoil them. Like pre-COVID, we have a full-fledged dinner where we just sit down and we just talk. We have free childcare. We allow our moms to kind of enter a space where it's just no judgment. You know, it's just a place where they can be who they are. They can connect with other moms. A lot of them feel like they are all by themselves. And then they come and they meet other moms just like them. And they get to just be teenagers for the night. We play games, we do crafts, we do parenting tips. We bring in people from the community to share about resources. We had a financial literacy coach come in and teach the girls about how to budget and save. We've had infant masseuse come in and teach them how to, you know, soothe and calm their babies. We've had the West Oak Lane Library come and teach them about how to read to your child. So we come together monthly for club where we do fun things like that. And then once our moms come regularly, we provide a one-on-one personal mentor. And we just kind of walk through life with that mom as long as they will allow us to. 
We also offer a one-week experience of camp where the mom and the baby get to go away from the city for a whole week and just have the best time of their life. And everyone that comes to our program, they get diapers, they get wipes. Um, they just get so much moral support and spiritual support, which is what we believe makes all the difference. Yeah, and why teen moms? They're the ones that are forgotten. Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, there are so many resources out there for you know, single moms of any age, but specifically teen moms, they're so vulnerable. They're at a point where they're at the highest risk of dropping out of school and never returning, you know, without a GED, without a degree, without a diploma. They're facing unemployment, they're facing poverty, and they're they're getting swept into the cycle. And we we can come in at this like vulnerable time of their lives and and push them, you know, towards their goals and encourage them. And we feel like this is the most critical age. This is that vulnerable time where we can just kind of catch them before it's too late to kind of break out of that cycle. Yeah. And, and I always think about teen motherhood. Motherhood is something that is typically celebrated, but with a lot of younger, the youngest of our mothers, it's not as celebrated. Should it be? Should we shift yeah. how we look at this? Absolutely. We, when we get like a referral for like an expectant mom, we celebrate, we have a welcome, congratulations. Like the fact that they chose life is so bold and so brave and it, it's so you know counter everything else that's going on and that needs to be celebrated that they chose to take the hard road you know to raise a life and we're here to walk them through we want them to know because you took the steps to take the hard road you don't have to do this alone we're going to walk it with you why did you choose to get involved with young lives i have a passion for this community um born and raised here raising our family here our kids go to school here. We worship here. My life is in West O'Glane. And so it's just, it's a passion for me anyway, to just connect with our community. I have a passion for connecting with women. I'm a preschool teacher, so I connect with small children. And then the church that I belong to is just passionate about getting involved with our community and making a difference. And so all of those things just kind of came together. And when we heard about Young Lives out in Norristown, we heard about the impact that they were making out there. We were like, wow, well, maybe we need to bring this because there's nothing like that that we knew of here in West Oak Lane. And so we brought it to our church and ladies came out the woodwork, like so many women who were teen moms. There were women that I didn't even know, like older women that were teen moms way back in the day. They wanted to give back. They wanted to help because they could connect with being a teen mom. And it was just overwhelming, the response that we got. Yeah, my mom was a teen mom. She had me, then she had my brother right back to back and then had my other brother. So mm -hmm. she had three kids, wow. you know, and, and she talked about it all the time about, you know, growing up yeah. while you raising souls. And it's tough. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure she would have loved to have had an organization like Young Lives. How can people support you and your efforts? Well, we need moms. It's, it's amazing. Like when you walk through the community, you see them everywhere. You see them at Target, you see them in the grocery store, you see them pushing the strollers through the neighborhood. But as soon as you start talking about a mentoring program, it's like, where'd they go? <laughs> they all kind of like disappear. So um, it's been really challenging to like find moms, you know, under 20. We're always looking for mentors. We're looking for community partners, you know, people that are in social service agencies, medical personnel, other churches in the area, 
We would love to connect with you, to invite you to our club, to share your resources. Anything going on this Mother's Day weekend for you all? Not this weekend, but May the 20th, we are having our Mother's Day club, a fitness club. And one of our teen moms is actually going to be leading it. She's a little exercise instructor. So um, we're encouraging our moms or any moms out there that are under 20, if they want to come get fit and have some fun with some other team moms to join us on May the 20th. Wonderful. And so how can people find you? So we're on Instagram and Facebook at Young Lives West Oak Lane. Wonderful. And that's how you reach the young moms because they're they're not necessarily checking out websites. Be sure to support Young Lives West Oak Lane. You can find them at, on Instagram at Young Lives West Oak Lane. Uh, thank you so much to Pam Canty for coming on Flashpoint. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here is one from Shakespeare. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. This show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.